Amen. I trust you have your Bibles open by now to uh, Acts chapter 25. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 25 and all the way through uh, chapter, uh, almost all the way through, well, all the way through Acts chapter 26 as well. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, just reach in the back of the pew in front of you. Those white paperback Bibles, that's the version that I preach out of and will be on page 544 and 545. Two pages this morning. We, uh, for those of you that have been here with us for a while, uh, our journey through the book of Acts has brought us up to this point. We've been in Acts for a good while, and we've got, uh, Lord willing, we've got after today, we've got two more weeks, and we'll finish up the book of Acts. And then on uh, Palm Sunday is when we're going to finish up our study in the book of Acts. And then that evening for our New Life Gathering, we're just going to have a celebration. Because anybody that can go through two years in one book, studying one book, we deserve a little celebration, don't we? Amen. 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 I'm I'm really looking forward uh, to that. I have, uh, you know, we joke about how long it's taken us to go through the book, but I think it's been an absolute blessing. It's been an absolute blessing to me, and I know that I've been changed because of it. And I trust that you have uh, as well. Well, when, you know, I tell stories all the time about when I was growing up, and, you know, I know that my kids will do, hopefully they won't do that from, hopefully CJ won't do that from this pulpit and embarrass me too much, but, uh, um, when I was growing up, there was, there were plenty of rules in my house, but there was one rule specifically in my house that I had to finish my homework before I could go outside and play. That was a, I mean, that was like, that was more uh, strenuously held to, I think, than any of the Ten Commandments. I thought that that was right up at the top. You had to finish your homework before you could go outside. But that didn't stop me from ha- trying to have the conversation. Parents, you know the conversation, right? They know the rule. They know what the rule is, but they still want to negotiate. And that's what I wanted to do. I mean, like, um, and here's how that conversation would go. It'd go something like, Mom, can, can I go outside? You know, all the kids, can I go outside and play? And what was her question? Do you have your homework done? You know what my response was? Almost. Her response was one that was burned into my head. I heard it so many times, and I probably burned it into my own kids' heads, and I can't wait till I hear them say it. Almost doesn't cut it. (laughs) Almost doesn't cut it. Almost doesn't cut it, does it? What would you think if I stood up here this morning and I told you, I said, well, you know, this week I had some other things to do, so I, I almost prepared a sermon. That might last a couple of weeks, wouldn't it? That'd that'd probably be about as effective as if you almost made it to church this morning. Now, for anybody that's not here that listens to this on the podcast, I'm talking about you. (laughs) How would you feel if your boss told you that you almost got paid this week? Almost doesn't put food on the table, does it? Almost doesn't pay the bills. Almost doesn't accomplish anything. You know, if you just look down the road here, we've got a bridge to a road that almost goes somewhere. Almost doesn't do anything. 
Almost doesn't accomplish anything. As a matter of fact, almost is probably the lamest word in the English language because it doesn't do anything. How many awesome projects almost got done? How many amazing inventions almost got invented? How many beautiful relationships almost made it? How many people don't know Jesus because we almost witnessed to him? How many people are lost forever that died without, that died almost trusting Jesus? Gets real, doesn't it? In our passage this morning, we're introduced to a man who was almost persuaded to be a Christian, but almost didn't cut it. See, to be almost saved is to be eternally lost. There's no, there's no gray area, there's no fine line in any of it. To be almost saved is to be eternally lost. Now, I want to remind you where we are as we've been walking our way through the book of Acts. Paul is in prison because he's been falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders of taking a Gentile into the temple. They, those Jewish religious leaders, they stirred, up, stirred the pot and stirred up a riot in Jerusalem that almost killed him. He was almost pulled apart by the people that stirred up that, that riot. And then after that, that didn't work. So after that, they took part in a conspiracy to try to kill him. Well, to protect Paul from the riotous mobs and the thieves and all of that kind of stuff, the Roman leaders ran him through their legal process. They shipped him off to Caesarea, first in front of a, a guy named Felix, the governor Felix, and then two years later in front of his replacement, Governor Festus. And we've talked about that over the last few weeks. Well, when he was in front of Festus, then is when Paul exercised his legal right to appeal to Caesar. And that's where we are this morning. That brings us to our passage this morning. So now that we're caught up, let's pick up the events in chapter 25, verses 13 through 22. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 25. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. It's hard to get Festus and Felix straight, isn't it? Verse 14, And they stayed there many days, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders, the Jews, laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of the evils that I supposed, as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul, whom Paul had asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. 
Okay, so after Emperor Claudius died, that's been the emperor up until this point, but after Emperor Claudius died, he was replaced by a fellow that you probably heard of, a man by the name of Nero, Emperor Nero. So when Nero became the emperor, Governor Felix lost his top cover. Claudius was kind of his sugar daddy, and he, he didn't have him anymore. So when he didn't have him anymore and Nero took charge, then Nero replaced Felix with Festus. All the Felixes and Festuses and Claudiuses and Neros, it's hard to keep straight, but just try to follow along if you would. Now that Governor Festus is in charge, he was the one who was responsible for sending Paul to Caesar, but he didn't have any real charges against him. You could picture it like this. It would be like if the governor of the state was sending a case to the Supreme Court, but he didn't have any evidence, or he didn't have any evidence, that not, not even enough evidence to indict or to send it to a grand jury, but he was sending it to the Supreme Court, or in this case, to Caesar. That's how absurd this whole thing was. But even though he didn't have a case... Paul had the right to appeal to Caesar, so Festus had to do it. So since he had to do it and he knew he didn't have a case, he said, well, you know what, I've got to get some political backing here. I've got to get some allies on my side. I can't be, I'm new in this job. I can't be the only one sending this absurd case to the emperor. And then look who shows up in town. This fella named Agrippa. Uh, really, it's King Agrippa II, or Herod Agrippa II, and his sister-slash-girlfriend, Bernice. We'll get into that in a little bit. Kind of creepy. But these two were something else. <laughs> Agrippa and Bernice, they were, I don't know what else, but they were something else. Now, I've told you before about the family lineage of Herod Agrippa II. His daddy, Herod Agrippa I was the one who murdered James, the brother of John, and he was the one that also tried to kill Peter. His great-uncle, Herod Antipas, he was the one who has the lovely reputation of beheading John the Baptist. His great-uncle, well, that was his great-uncle. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, Herod the Great was probably the most powerful of all the Herods. He was the one who ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to be slaughtered after Jesus was born. This was a great family. Now, not only was that Agrippa II's heritage, he also had two sisters. One of them we've already met before. Her name was Drusilla. She was married to Felix's predecessor, I mean to Festus's predecessor, Felix. So we've already met her before. But his other sister was Bernice, who was also his girlfriend. That's sick, right? I mean, it just kind of creeps you out just to think about it. But that's who these people were. But no matter how vile and no matter how disgusting Agrippa was, Festus needed him. You know, they talk about politics, right? He needed the political top cover. He needed the political top cover, especially of Agrippa, Agrippa II, because Agrippa II had been appointed as, quote, king of the Jews. Now, king of the Jews, it was mostly a figurehead position, but it did have some political sway. And since Festus was looking for uh, uh, cover from the Jews, he thought, how better to get that from the king of the Jews? 
So seeing the, seeing all of that, and then Agrippa shows up, and Agrippa is, wants nothing more than to look important and to feel important. So he seizes the opportunity, and he asks for a public hearing with Paul. Now he could have heard all this in, just in the, in the office or in the, over the banquet table. He could have heard all this and just said, okay, whatever. But no, Agrippa, he, he never wanted to miss the opportunity to look important, so he demanded this public hearing with Paul. So that's what happened. <clears throat> look at verses 23 through 27, <clears throat> through the end of the chapter. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Just lock in your imagination and try to, try to picture this scene. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, verse 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and in here, and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord, to write to Caesar, about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Of course it seems unreasonable. He didn't want to look foolish in front of Caesar. Now, we've already said that Agrippa II, he was being king of the Jews. He was mostly a figurehead position. He didn't really have, he didn't really have a whole lot of power, especially compared to Herod the Great, the one that we talked about earlier. Matter of fact, ever since Herod the Great, the Herodian, the dynasty of the Herods had been decreasing in influence and in power. They'd been in steady decline since that time. By this time, it was mostly for show, but what a show it was. Verse 23 says that they came with great pomp. You know, when I hear words like that in Scripture, it just makes my imagination go wild. Can you picture the scene? This is the only time the word is used in the New Testament. The word that's translated with great pomp, the word behind it is the word phantasis. Phantasis, does that sound familiar? It's the word we get the word fantasia or fantasy from. I wonder if the people who are watching Agrippa and Bernice prancing around in all of their finery and all of this pomp and circumstance, all of their false majesty, I wonder if they really understood that all of that that they were looking at was just a fantasy. You see the contrast here? The, the false and fading kingdom of the Herods, the kingdom of the Jews of the Herods, that false and fading kingdom was adorned with great pomp and circumstance. But the kingdom of Christ was adorned with this broken little man. It's simple testimony. Listen to me. Don't ever get intimidated by the great pomp of fantasy kingdoms. And we're surrounded by fantasy kingdoms, aren't we? 
Sometimes you might feel like you're one little believer, one little insignificant believer standing against a whole world of sex and lies and accusations and sin and confusion, all dressed up in its great pomp. But you need to remember something. You need to remember that all that pomp, all that attractiveness, all of that glitter is just quickly fading fantasy. The kingdom of Christ that you as a believer represent is eternal and will stand forever. Amen? Don't get caught up in those pompous fantasies of this world. Live for a kingdom that lasts. So here's Agrippa. The, uh, I call him the fantasy king. Here's the fantasy king Agrippa. And he's just heard Governor Felix's opening. Now it was time for him to hear from Paul. Look at chapter 26, the first three verses. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. When Scripture talks about Paul stretching out his hand, it was a rhetorical device that only the best trained speakers of the day would use. It proves that Paul was just an eloquent, dynamic speaker. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That's the plea of every preacher, right? I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul, he had waited He had waited all this time for his opportunity. And when he got his opportunity, he seized his opportunity. He was polite about it. He was articulate about it. He knew what he was going to say when the opportunity came. And most of all, he knew his audience. But more than all of that, he knew his objective. His objective was not to present a case that was going to get him released If that happens, so be it. Paul's objective was to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his objective. Notice that in verse 3, like I said, Paul begs Agrippa to listen to him patiently. Now, I'm going to need you to do that because we're going to read a long section of Scripture here in just a second as we read what Paul's testimony was in verses 4 through 23. And as I read that, I'm asking you to follow along, but more than that, I'm begging you to listen patiently as we go through that. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 26, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, and that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. All right, everybody still with me? Everybody still with me? Everybody still awake? Well, that's Paul's testimony. All of that sounds familiar, doesn't it? One of the reasons that I wanted to warn you about, you know, just staying with me on that is because this has become very familiar to us. This is probably the third time that we have gone through Paul's testimony. We've seen what happened at the road to Damascus. We've seen all of that. We've heard it over and over throughout the book of Acts. I hope that just because we've heard it over and over again, I hope that it doesn't begin to sound redundant to you. Just like I hope that your own testimony doesn't start to sound redundant to you. Just like I hope that the testimony of your brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't begin to sound redundant to you. Maybe it was starting to seem redundant to Festus. So if it was starting to seem boring or seem redundant to Festus, if he wanted to move the procedure along, he found an interesting way to do it in verse 24, didn't he? He interrupted him in verse 24. So let's finish up that passage of verses 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become 
such as I am, except for these chains. And the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and who, all who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is, do, is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. You know, back up to the distraction. I, I love the way Paul deals with Festus's distraction. You know, Festus hollers at him saying that you've lost your mind, you're mad, you're crazy. And Paul looks right at Festus, and he responded to him respectfully, just like he should have. And then in the middle of his response, he turns right back to Agrippa in verse 25, and he gets back on the task where he was, presenting the gospel. And he addressed Agrippa, and he reminded Agrippa that Agrippa had a Jewish background. Agrippa knew, or at least he was familiar with the Old Testament. The law and the prophets of the Old Testament, he certainly didn't live by it, but he was familiar with it. Paul knew that, so he confronted, it, confronted him with it in verse 27. And then after he confronted him with it in verse 27, Agrippa deflected his words with those words, those heartbreaking words that we're most familiar with in this passage. The way that the ESV renders it is it says, he said, in such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? I think many of us who grew up with the King James are more familiar with the way that it's rendered in the King James. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. That's haunting. That's haunting to me. I wonder how many of you here this morning are almost persuaded to be a Christian. How many of you have sat under the teaching of the Bible enough that you're familiar with it, but you've never been persuaded to become a Christian? You need to understand this. To be almost persuaded is to be completely lost. There's no middle ground. There's no putting it off. There's no waiting to a more opportune time. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. So right here in the middle of this sermon, I'm begging you to be persuaded today. Don't be almost persuaded. I'm begging you to be persuaded today. So as I'm begging you to be persuaded today, I also want to take this opportunity to share with you six things that really stuck out to me as I was studying this passage over the last few weeks. first thing that really stuck out to me was, as believers, it is our job to persuade people to become Christians. With, with all of our emphasis, you know how all the time we emphasize building relationships with people and meeting people and, and, and getting together with people and building relationships with people. I hope that in all of our emphasis on building relationships with people that you don't forget that the objective is that, of that is for us to persuade them to become Christians, to become believers. Every relationship that you build with a lost person needs to come to a crisis point. 
There must be a point in those relationships, in all of our relationships with lost people, there must come a point when you confront them with the fact that apart from Christ, they're lost and on their way to a sinner's hell. They're bound in the chains of their own sin. And apart from Christ, there is absolutely no escape from the chains of their sin. There's no amount of therapy. There's no amount of self-medication. There's no amount of mindfulness or wellness or meditation or vacations or distractions or entertainment. No amount of social activism or slacktivism or any kind of good works. None of those things can None of those things are the key to unlock the chains of the bonds of sin that people are in. None of those things can release a person from the bondage of their own sin. None of those things can cleanse a person or make them whole. None of those things can give a person a right relationship with the God who created them. Persuade people that they need Jesus. They need to be confronted with the fact that Jesus died for their sins, that He paid the price that they could be released from their chains. He bought them back out of the slavery of their sins. But not only did He die for them, three days later He rose from the grave, victorious over their sin, victorious over death, victorious over the grave, victorious over hell. And He lives today to give them new life in Him. That's the gospel that we need to share with people. That's the gospel that we need to use to persuade people to come to Jesus. Whether you have a short time with somebody or whether you have a long time with somebody, there needs to come a point in your relationship with people where you persuade them to become a Christian. Second, a great way to persuade somebody to become a Christian is to start with your own story. Notice I said start with your own story. But it's a great starting point. Like I said, if you've been here with us for a while, you've seen Paul's testimony over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And as you read Paul's letters throughout his letters, he is continually referring back to what Jesus did for him on the Damascus Road. Paul is continually referring back to his testimony. The reason that you've heard Paul's testimony several times before is because Paul never got tired of sharing his testimony with people. He never got over what Jesus did for him on the road to Damascus. Have you gotten over what Jesus did for you when He saved you? I think some of us have been saved so long we forgot what it was like to be lost. And we can't do that. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you've got a so-called dramatic testimony or not. Whatever your story is, tell it. You might not think your story is dramatic, but the fact that no matter how good or how nice or how clean cut or how what a good neighbor or whatever, whatever category of good you wanted to put yourself in, no matter how good you were before you were saved, you were still bound in the chains of sin and on your way to a sinner's hell apart from Christ. And now that you're in Christ... You're eternally secure in His hand, and there's nothing that can pluck you from it. 
Your destiny, you're, you're sealed with His Spirit and destined for eternity in the presence of the One who loved you enough to die for you. I don't care how good your background was before you got saved. That is a dramatic testimony. Share your story. Share your story. Third, when you're persuading somebody to become a Christian, don't fall for distractions. All the distractions are going to come, aren't they? When Paul was right in the middle of telling his story, you saw what happened there in verse 24, right? Festus jumps in with a loud voice. He says, Paul, you're a nut. You're smart, but you're a smart nut. Listen, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict somebody of their need for a Savior, they will do anything that they can to change the subject. I, I, I get, it's almost funny. As you begin to share the gospel with people and you see how this happens over and over again, it's almost funny to see the ways that people will try to, dis- try to distract you from sharing the gospel. I've had people try to deflect gospel conversations with everything from politics. That's a huge one now. People want to talk politics. Well, you know, you evangelical Christians, you, and then the next thing you know, you're, they're wanting you to talk about, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and all that. And it, you look at them, and then you move on, and you go back to your subject. They talk politics. They want to talk evolution. They want to talk, you know, deep theological religious questions. I've had people try to distract me from gospel conversations by wanting to talk about dinosaurs. They'll find anything. I've even had lost people try to deflect gospel conversations by wanting to get you on a discussion about certain Bible translations or certain worship styles. And these are lost people wanting to talk to you about what kind of worship style. Listen, however they try to deflect or distract, don't allow yourself to get distracted. Remember, your objective is to share Jesus, not to win a political argument. Don't get distracted. Keep your focus on your objective. Fourth, be direct when necessary. Now, that's hard depending on your personality type. There are some personality types in here that have no problem being direct. Might need to knock an edge off of being direct sometimes. But there are many personality types that don't like that confrontation, don't like that to be direct. But this isn't a matter of personality type. If you're a believer, no matter what your personality type, you're called to be bold in your witness. And I know for many of us how terrifying that sounds because it sounds just as terrifying to me. But listen to me. Eternity is at stake. Do you hear me? And that's a long time, brothers and sisters. Eternity is at stake. These people are your friends, they're your relatives, they're your neighbors, and if they die apart from Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. Isn't that a whole lot more terrifying than our fear of persuading them to become Christians? 
In verse 27, Paul asked Agrippa a very pointed question. He said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He didn't even wait for an answer, did he? He said, do you believe the prophets? Oh, I know you believe. I know you believe. Paul was so direct in his gospel conversation with Agrippa that Agrippa had absolutely no doubt in his mind that Paul was trying to persuade him to become a Christian. I think when Agrippa asked that question back to Paul, he was he was surprised that Paul wasn't trying to get himself off the hook. He was trying to persuade him to become a Christian. But he had no doubt that Paul was being direct enough that there wasn't any confusion in Agrippa's mind that Paul was trying to get him converted. You might even say that Paul was being pushy with him. Oh, we don't want to be pushy. We don't want to sound like a car salesman. Well, in our desire not to sound pushy, are we allowing our friends and relatives and neighbors to go to hell? Do your lost friends and co-workers and neighbors and family ever think that you're being pushy with them? If not, maybe it's time to be a little bit more direct. Fifth, don't end your conversation with confrontation. Now, wait a minute, I just told you to be bold. Well, don't end there. Don't leave it there. Finish with compassion. The whole reason that we share the gospel with people is because we love them and we don't want them to go to hell. We love our friends and relatives and neighbors. As believers, we have experienced the greatest gift imaginable. We have had the chains of our sin removed. We are free in Christ. We have a relationship with the one who created us. That's the greatest gift imaginable, and we want to share that gift with others. We share Jesus out of love for Him and our responsibility because of our love for Him, but we share Jesus with others because we love them. So don't be angry about it. Don't be harsh. I just was in a... Somehow I got caught up in an online discussion. Never do that. Oh, my goodness. got caught up with a believer who was just obnoxious. Don't be harsh. Be winsome with people. Think about who Paul was addressing. And just in my little account of describing who Agrippa and his sister-slash-girlfriend were... I saw you, you had the same feeling I did, just the willies, right? Don't let your disgust about somebody's lifestyle cause you to be harsh with them. Right? Paul could have wagged an angry finger up in Agrippa's face and said, your incest is disgusting and it is an abomination before the Lord. Is it an abomination before? Yes, it's an abomination before the Lord. And Paul could have said that and been completely and totally true. The dude was sleeping with his sister, for goodness sakes. But Paul didn't do that, did he? He had compassion. 
Because how are lost people going to act? Lost people are going to act like lost people, right? So Paul had compassion. He finished up his gospel conversation, his very direct, his very bold gospel conversation. He finished it up by saying, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Oh, I I beg with you, I plead with you, I wish that you would get saved, that you would trust Jesus. He finished with compassion. See, persuasion isn't badgering. Persuasion isn't nagging. Persuasion isn't standing back and yelling at people. Persuasion isn't protesting. Persuasion is boldly proclaiming the gospel with a friend, family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody you see at the grocery store. And it's doing it with love and kindness and compassion. Sixth, when you're persuading someone to become a Christian, ultimately you need to leave it in God's hands. Our responsibility is to share the gospel persuasively. Tell your story. Don't fall for distractions. Be direct when necessary. Always show compassion. And when you've done all that you can do, And you leave it in God's hands. After Paul poured out his heart trying to persuade Agrippa and Bernice and Festus to become Christians, do you see what happened in verse 30? They got up and left. They just got up and left. There wasn't any weeping. There wasn't any professions of faith. Nobody was at the altar. There was no salvations that we know of. But Paul was faithful to do what he'd been called to do. Be faithful to what God's called you to do. Share your faith. Persuade people to become Christians. Plant gospel seeds, water those gospel seeds, and trust God with the harvest. As we looked at this passage, this account this morning, it's been easy to see the chains that were holding Paul. In verse 32, Agrippa told Festus that this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. It was easy for Agrippa to look at Paul and see Paul in physical chains, but Agrippa could not look at himself and see his own spiritual chains. You see, in the reality of what was going on there, it looked like Paul was the one that was in bondage, but really Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and the rest of them were the ones that were in chains. Speaking specifically of Agrippa, Agrippa, the one who Paul was addressing, the one who Paul was sharing the gospel with, Agrippa was still the one who was in bondage to his sin. When he got up and he said, this man shouldn't be in chains, Agrippa was still the one who was in bondage to his sin. Agrippa told Festus that Paul could have been set free from his chains if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But what do you think it was that kept Agrippa from being set free from his chains? If you've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, then I'm going to ask you that same question this morning. What is keeping you from being set free from your chains? What's keeping you from allowing me to persuade you to become a Christian this morning? 
Don't do like these guys did and just get up and leave and go on about your business. Allow yourself to be persuaded. If you've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, today is the day of your salvation. There might not be another one. Trust Him. Whatever you do, don't leave this place almost persuaded.